Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. My guest this week is Danielle Snyder. Danielle is an avid trail runner and licensed clinical social worker who, through her work with athletes, focuses on the connection between mental health and physical performance. While people are definitely more open to talking about mental health nowadays, I think there's still a stigma around it, and the ultra running world is not immune to runners struggling with mental disorders. So I wanted to talk to Danielle about why that is and what we can do to help normalize these kinds of conversations. Danielle and I cover a lot of ground in this episode. We talk about things like why we should reframe how we think about mental toughness, why athletes might actually struggle with their mental health more than other populations, how to think about failure, and a whole lot else. I'm hoping to have more of these kinds of conversations in the future, and I think this was a really great starting point. Before we get into that chat, though, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all of the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, personalized gear recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Danielle Snyder. Hey, Danielle, welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here. I've been really looking forward to having this kind of conversation on the podcast for a while. I really want to talk to you about mental health today and some of the issues that runners in particular are up against when it comes to dealing with psychological well-being and and how we handle adversity. Because I I do think there is quite a bit of a stigma still attached to mental health. And I know it's, it's probably gotten better in um, you know the past few years, and I don't know. I think the pandemic has maybe helped with that. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that later. But as an expert in the field, I thought you would be the perfect person to talk to you um, about this subject. But before we get started on that, I want an update on the Women Who FKT project because I know you are super involved with that. Uh, For listeners that may have missed our episode with Marta Fisher a couple months ago who helped kickstart that that project, um, can you give us a bit of a description of what Women Who FKT is all about? Yeah, I'd love to. So maybe hmm, a year ago at this point, Marta, who I actually coach, um, competed in hard rock and noticed that there was like this huge discrepancy between males and females at Hard Rock. And she got into doing some more exploration into the actual figures. Um, They found a way to kind of remove the data. I was gonna say, I don't even know how they did it, but essentially they got the data and they were able to reflect that there are not only within these races, there are also these huge discrepancies within FKTs or fastest known times for those of you who haven't heard of it before. So Marta gathered a few women and essentially we created this group to encourage other women to feel empowered to go after FKTs. And within our small committee, We offer opportunities to ask us questions. We will do 
um, like information sessions. We have our own website that is a little bit more intricate than what the FKT has, as well as a Slack channel. It's just, so it's essentially just, you know, having a warm welcome to women in order to help FKTs feel more approachable. And it worked because in June, which was our Women Who FKT kickoff, we had 25 women to 22 men complete FKTs. And not that it's like a per se a competition of women versus men. It's just more difficult to get women, according to the numbers, like women are less likely to um, complete an FKT than a man. Do you have any FKTs lined up for the rest of the year? I actually don't. So I did one in June to do the Women Who FKT kickoff. And um, I kind of find myself either needing to plan FKTs or a race. I can't have the bandwidth, unfortunately, to do all of it because they require a lot of planning. And as I hadn't done an FKT, I think in like a year up until this June one. And I forgot, you know, some essential things to planning, uh, such as like, I didn't really look at the course beforehand, which is such a rookie mistake. Um, but I, I thought it was, it was the Wilson river trail for those people who live in the Pacific Northwest. It's pretty, pretty self-explanatory out and back. And somehow like there was a reroute that I didn't know about. And so I like lost five to 10 minutes, which, at the end of the day, it wasn't a big deal. I was still able to get the FKT, but you know, <laughs> not you know that extra adrenaline rush of like being like, "Shit, did I go the wrong way again?" It's just not worth it. So you know, good reminder: do your research before you go out there. To be fair, like that area, I've done some running in, and it is like very forested and like really easily to get like turned around in. I'll take it. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, so do you have any races coming up then? Um, I do. So I am planning to do 10 away 100. I don't know if I said that right. That's in Washington. Um, but I actually am getting over COVID. And I actually was pacing and crewing a friend up at Hard Rock and got COVID for the first time. And so I'm having to be a little bit more flexible and like a week and a half out from COVID and my energy is kind of st- still low and uh, my training, you know, during some of the more essential time of training, it, it took a little bit of a, a frustrating turn. And so I'm, I'm kind of playing it by year at this point to see if I can be as prepared as I want to be. Um, so anyway, it's a pretty gnarly course and it's not something I want to go in unprepared to. So we'll see how the next couple weeks go and how I recover from COVID. What was uh, being out at Hard Rock like? You know, I'm a little jaded because I'm like, gave me COVID, but it was so amazing. Um, I, uh, that was my first time out on the course, out in Silverton. I've been in URA before. And I mean, the mountains are just like unreal. And I, I paced my good friend, Emily, who also is a woman... She's not, uh, she is someone who's done some pretty gnarly FKTs herself. Um, and we developed a friendship over, she took my record on the Oregon Pacific Crest Trail. 
and I helped support her. And so I've come, gone to some of her races since then. And I had to pace her for like 14 or 15 miles. It was like 5,000 feet of climbing. And I was just in awe of her because she just is relentless. Like there was no, nothing stopping her from getting to that finish line. So it was, it was pretty magical. Yeah, I've been meaning to to make it out there one summer for like soft rock because I think that that might be the way to 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 run that course in like several days. It's the wildflowers, the stars, like it is just unreal. I, if you can do it, get out here. Can we talk a little bit more about uh, maybe your background? Tell the audience like a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Um. So I originally went to grad school and I got my master's in social work and then I got my licensed clinical social work um, certification and it it's like you have to be supervised for 3,000 hours and and then apply for it and take a test subsequently well well during that time I guess I was working as a mobile crisis therapist and I that was like my first real introduction with the systematic challenges of mental health and how um, as a society we have a certain perspective of what mental health looks like and how unrealistic it is. I, you know, I remember being a younger female in the field and when what happens is we go to individuals' houses and we do acute safety assessments. And if someone is deemed unsafe in the house, we have to call the police to help facilitate that person getting to safety. And when an individual presented in a more, for lack of a better term, sophisticated manner, there would be a lot of um, discussion surrounding my credentials, surrounding like if I was making the right decision and if we were going to get sued. And, you know, it, it was just a real experience getting to understand like, in our system alone, like we have these certain beliefs of what individuals who are struggling should look like or what their lives should be. And in the reality, that's just not how it is. Anyone can struggle for mental health. And, you know, something I am coined saying is that we're all essentially a crisis away from having a mental health struggle. And so how did you kind of pair that with athletics? So I, I mean, I have been running for most of my life and I started to get into the longer distances and I started to reflect upon the the congruency between athletes and mental health and how they treat themselves. And I picked up on a pattern that athletes are seemingly this really these really strong tough individuals, but if you cut underneath the surface, they struggle harder (laughs) and alone or as much as anyone else does. Um, And so I ended up taking this certification in sports and social work. And what, you know, one of the first things they said to us is athletes are actually an underserved population. And that was extremely meaningful to me to better understand that, you know, we as a society have deemed athletes as healthy and that is maybe a reflection on their physical health, but it is not a reflection on their mental wellness. 
So what are some issues you see in like an athlete population with respect to like mental health? Like how does it manifest and how do you kind of break down their walls to, to kind of like confront their issues? Like, what do I not see? So yeah, (laughs) athletes, I mean, they struggle with sleeping challenges, managing stress, eating disorders, substance abuse, unhealthy relationships. So, I mean, I, you know, I just think that because athletes are so capable in a lot of areas of their life, they are not flagged as struggling. And, you know, un- unfortunately, we are seeing this really um, strongly in the collegiate world right now as the rates of suicide with um, student athletes has increased dramatically in over the past couple of years. Right. Like endurance athletes in particular are kind of trained to endure suffering and like generally do a really good job of like masking it. So I can see why like that is a a very, you know, as you said, like underserved population. How did you go about starting your own company? Because I know your company's name is Inner Drive Athletes. When did that kind of come onto your map as as something that you wanted to do professionally? Yeah. um, Well, you know, I was doing some of my own big challenges and I started to put into practice some of the tools I had been learning. I had been taking another certificate program on wellness and uh, mindset. And, you know, I was having these experiences where I was like, wow, this like this stuff really works, which is kind of like corny, but I'm like, huh, like there's actually this well, our brain is actually fat, but our brains, I like to call it brain and muscle, but our, our, our fat-filled brains are super adaptive and they have a ton of neurons and they are like primed to learn. Even after 25, when our frontal lobes are developed, we are still like grasping and wanting to create connections and improve neuroplasticity. And so when I started to really think about this, I also started to talk to other runners and I recognized that there's this, there's this niche in the ultra running community, which is um, working with ultra runners. So understanding what they're asking their bodies to do. And also like, (laughs) I hate this word, but like kind of understanding the neurosis behind it and also the passion and what some what you have to ask your body to do as well as your support system. Um, and so I decided to create a business that has, it's twofold. So I coach athletes as well as I um, offer mindset training. And sometimes people intertwine and do both. And other times people will just choose one or the other. What does mindset training look like? Like, practically like if i were to approach you and be like hey like i need help with my perspective um heading into this race or dealing with you know anxiety about this race like how would you kind of approach that that's a great question so i mean the first thing i would really want to hone in on is actually a specific goal that we could create um i think a lot of times when people approach me they have a certain idea in mind what they want, but when we uncover it, they could be looking for something else. And so I really 
work with the individual through asking questions to match their desires with their goals. Um, and it kind of, it, you know, this is a, not maybe necessarily an ultra running example, but I do think it's an interesting example. I work with this gentleman who um, he came to me because he wanted to stop overeating. And what we were able to find out is that the overeating was actually able to help him relax. And so it was what he was looking forward to at the end of the day. So we then had to kind of problem solve and the goal became what activity can we help you discover that can provide you a sense of um, safety and comfort and relaxation. Ultra running. Why, and maybe like if this is true, like why do you think there are more folks with, you know, mental health issues drawn to that sport in particular versus say, I don't know, basketball or something like that? You know, what makes us really good at ultra running is often what also makes a struggle, which is you know, uh, having a personality trait of uh, perfectionism and addictive qualities. You know, it it's, takes a special personality to wake up every morning and want to go out and run when they're exhausted. And so we have a, like all of us, we have a nuanced responsibility to kind of learn how to work with our bodies and our brains because what makes us strong is also what can hurt us. What do you think of like kind of like the premium put on mental toughness in our sport? Like, do you think that is is helpful at all? Or do you think it's just kind of um, negative rhetoric? I think sometimes when I'm about to like discuss some of my opinions, I'm like, oh man, people are going to hate this. But I don't actually agree with a lot of the perspectives that we currently hold within uh, the ultra running community, which is like death before DNF or, you know, there's no space for crying or saying that you're tired or any of that stuff. I think by starting training or getting on a start line, you are exhibiting toughness and toughness comes in a lot of different forms. Like being afraid of something and trying it anyway is a really good example of toughness, but not in a traditional sense. So we can encapsulate both. Like you can be tough and still struggle and still work with your body. It's a bit more nuancy than just grinding through. And it's not that you don't do really hard things. You're still going to do really hard things. But instead, you're asking your body to join you on the journey rather than lead, like overriding the things that are really important to have a successful journey. I've heard the term um, psychological flexibility used um, in the context of like getting through an ultra. Um, What does like psychological flexibility mean to you and how is it kind of practiced? Yeah, that's such a great term. Um, So to me, what psychological flexibility means is adaptation. And so it, it is the opportunity to acknowledge a challenge and be able to move forward and grow and adapt and change to whatever is going on within that. And I mean, that's essentially something you can practice every single day, which I think is really awesome about the ultra running, ultra running in general is that, you know, you could like essentially if your alarm doesn't go off 
on time. Boom, there is an opportunity to practice mental flexibility. How are you gonna figure out your day and still have an okay day rather than like letting everything go up in flames? Or you spill your coffee. You know, normal things that happen all the time that are so easily translated into ultra running because that is something happening in a race that, that could make or break you. But if you know you have that ability to pause, reflect, make a good decision, and be flexible, because you've been practicing it every time something goes wrong in your life, you're gonna it's gonna be smoother on the course versus shocking. Yeah, I think a good analogy to that is like gut training, you know? Like you kind of train totally. your stomach outside of a race so it performs well inside of a race and the same can be true um, with respect to yeah how you think about adversity yeah I, I really like that so what does like a healthy relationship to running look like for you because I think that's something that I know I've struggled with and that is like pretty prevalent in ultra running I'm not so sure everyone's relationship to the sport is as healthy as it could be. Um, mm-hmm. Are there some guidelines that you use to like evaluate if someone's relationship to exercise in general is is benefiting them or maybe like causing them harm? Well, that's a really challenging question because I do think it's very individualized. And I also think it depends on where you are during the cycle of your training. So when I am in my peak weeks of running, like my balance is not great. And that's just the reality of being prepared for a race. Like I can't, if I want to go in as physically prepared as I can, there are certain training runs that I'm going to have to do, which might mean that I have to not um, have as much of a foundational healthy lifestyle as I like to do. So what I, you know, what I think is important is that flexibility to ebb and flow with training could be an example of being healthier. Can you, after a race, take some time off and let yourself recover? Um, If something happens and your body is like giving you a blaring red flag, can you stop? Um, I know that's like another thing that's really hard for me when I'm in like the further I get into the dark training, the less I have that reflection on like, is this good for me anymore? Because I kind of like, you got to get your head down and you got to get through it. And so being able to pause and reflect and make sure that like, I am thinking long term as well. Do you use running um, to de-stress? I don't actually believe that running is a de-stressor. Well, let's um, talk about that. Yeah, that's like a, you know. It was a pointed I, question. Yeah. I know. I was like, oh, he knew. I was setting you up. <laughs> you totally set me up. Did you see me? Like, ooh. Yeah. yeah. So running is great. It's great for exercise. It gets our endorphins going. It helps us get outside. It's socializing. It's like all these wonderful things. However, it is a cortisol increaser. You are essentially dumping a crap ton of cortisol into your body every time you run. When I ask people what they're doing for uh, to calm their nervous system and they tell me running, I have to educate them that like there should be another counteracting system at play. So running is not therapy. Running is not regulating your emotions. 
running is great for like exploring and adventuring. Right. So to de-stress, like you need to know how to cope with your emotions. Right. It's kind of like this idea that like anything that can be taken away, like shouldn't be relied on as like a coping mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. What are some things you do do to de-stress? That, that is a great question. So for a really long time, I mean, most of the de-stressors that I use were movement-based. But, you know, I mean, as I was saying earlier in this interview, I just had COVID. You can't de-stress <laughs> moving when you have COVID. I mean, you can't go outside. So, you know, some of the things that I've worked really hard on establishing is I, I actually I do a meditative practice. I work with my own provider. I try to do yoga. I really, I find actually cooking to be really relaxing for me. And I have two dogs. So, so you know, like my, for a long time, my life was like only running. Um, and it, I do still spend a lot of time running. But without like... Running is fickle, and it's going to break your heart. And if you don't have other supports in play, then when running becomes fickle, it's going to be really hard. How do you go about like helping people through kind of like the injury process? Because I know that like unfortunately in our sport, yeah, running or injury rather is like kind of inevitable. What are some good like starting points for like trying to process that and like use? failure, not that injury is a failure, but use kind of like a setback as like a stepping stone um, that you can learn from? I mean, the first thing is acknowledging that injuries suck. You know, I, I think we often don't say, say it out loud, like feel it. Give yourself that opportunity to mourn that loss of the race, that loss of the season, whatever it is that you were looking forward to that you don't have anymore. Um, and so that's kind of one of the things that I work on with an athlete first is feeling what they need to feel in order to heal. The next thing is like creating a plan. Also, a really important thing is small steps. So you can celebrate little things, little achievements, rather than just focusing on getting back to running the mileage that you were before. And also remembering like this is a period of time and nothing lasts forever. And uh, what we have control over, like nutrition, sleeping enough, self-care, finding joy, are going to be things that also help you heal quicker as well. I think for me, when I've been injured, I've just been overcome by like a sense of like loneliness and like FOMO. Mm -hmm. So making sure that I still have a schedule to where I'm like interacting with my running friends, like outside of running was super helpful. And also just like, honestly, like staying off social media, uh, which is something else. I also like want to talk a little bit about what are your thoughts on our, I guess, general relationship to social media and how can we kind of like make that healthier? Cause I think it's similar to running pretty fickle. Oh, totally. Well, I mean, I often feel bad because I'm like, oh, I'm so addicted to social media and I feel bad about it. And then I'm like, it's their job. 
Like, right, exactly. This is what they hire people for is to suck me into this. Um, you know, you could do what I do, which is like follow tons of dogs <laughs> and it will make you really happy. And then your social media makes you less sad. But I, you know what? I really do believe that there we should do time frame with social media, like put certain boundaries on how often we are getting on social media, when we are getting on social media, and what our intentions are behind it. Um, like every break, if you pop on social media and you're looking at these individuals who are displaying a life that feels very far away for you, it's just going to make you feel bad. And it, you know, it's kind of like anything in life that we know the outcome, we will like, it doesn't necessarily stop us from doing it. And so creating a, a plan to limit your time on social media is something that I'm really, um, promote with my athletes. Yeah, I think I, I was off of social media for a while. And what I noticed was that like when I initially kind of gave it up, it was the first 30 days that were like the hardest. I mean, and that's an addiction. Right. And it's that, well, what's funny is that like when I've been injured, it's always the first 30 days of like not running that are the hardest. And then things totally. get like exponentially easier. Both are, <laughs> are unfortunately very, very addictive. People know that social media is addictive, but I, I think like, unless you run a lot, it's tough to really make that like association with our sport. Although I've heard the definition of like an addiction can't be good for you. Like that's the definition of an addiction. Oh, interesting. I've never thought about an addiction. I mean, I do think some addictions can't be good for you. Like there are addictions like drug addictions, which aren't good for you at all. Um, But you know what? This is going to kind of sound like really... Uh, bizarre, but like there is a reason that people start using drugs and it's not necessarily good for them, but that's, it's an escape. And so like, it's not necessarily, I mean, it turns out to be all negative, but a lot of times people turn to substances or turn to alcohol or turn to an eating disorder to escape something. And so it's not a great coping skill, but it is often achieving the desired effect. So at some level, addictions may not be healthy for you, but there's like a a reason you're doing it. Right, right. It kind of like shows you a lack or something like that, something that's missing. Yeah. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, what COVID and the pandemic has done to affect the discourse around mental health, Um, socially, and in the context of, I guess, ultra running, if you've seen that change. Because I, I just, what I'm getting at is that I think people are more willing to talk about it, um, but I don't know if, if talking about it affects change. You know, from what I am seeing, I, you know, athletes are being more open about their own mental health. Um, I think society does, is doing a better job encouraging mental wellness and boundaries and balance. Um, However, I do think that we have certain systems at play that are lurking in the background that often impact people's desire and ability to be maybe as open about mental health that they are about a physical injury. Yeah, I I know that like in some respects, I feel like closer to people 
like after the pandemic because I was like in a bubble with some really close friends. Yeah. Um, what was your pandemic experience like? You know, I actually lived with my best friend during the pandemic and we ended up like being able to have a really um, nice experience together. It was really hard not being near, seeing my family for a couple of years. It was really scary and it felt really helpless, especially from like a, a, a perspective of usually giving to the community. But when I see the implication that it has, the ripple effect currently still is kind of kind of more impactful to me than the like immediate COVID impact was to me. Has it changed the way you interact with patients? Um, I guess like, maybe not like not, not like like physically like you know COVID protocols and stuff, but the like the way you see people's mental health. Yeah, I mean, I think that people aren't able to necessarily recognize how much the um, the current events are still impacting their overall stress level, and so a lot of times I have to like remind them like, hey. Well, there's still a lot going on globally that is probably impacting the way you're managing your stress level. Um, like, you know, even going to the grocery store, I mean, it's not inherently that stressful anymore, but it is still pretty stressful to uh, like know about inflation. And if you get COVID, like how you get groceries and, you know, there's a lot of things that three or four years ago, we didn't think about that we are now inundated with. Yeah, I'll be really curious to see what that looks like in like, you know, 20 years. Like, yeah, but I guess we got a little bit of time to wait till then. (laughs) Something else I wanted to ask you about uh, was failure, because I know you've done a lot of thinking about that and how it's kind of like framed in the context of our sport. How do you think of failure, whether that's like DNFing at a race or kind of like underperforming? I'm such a big fan of failure. I mean, let's be real. It sucks. It's so painful and uncomfortable and like heart aching when you're going through it. Um, And yet it continues to be the biggest teacher. I, when I have a good race presentation, um, I mean, anything, honestly, like it's kind of not boring, but there's not a lot of opportunity for growth in that. And so when I've worked really hard because I, like many people, were raised thinking that failure is just not an acceptable option, to embrace it and know that a part of going for really big goals means that you're going to misstep and you're going to fall and you're going to have to learn from that and be honest when it's uncomfortable and, and show up regardless. So I openly invite people to try failing. Can you give me an example of of a time that you might have failed and what you've learned from? Sure, Matt. Let me tell you about (laughs) a time I might have failed. So Matt and I have just recorded this podcast that you're listening to previously an hour ago. And then I somehow deleted the recording. And then poor Matt and I had to re-record it. That could have been seen as a failure because it was a failure. However, you know, we had like two options. Like we could have gotten really angry about it and been like, F this, we're not gonna 
ever record again or we're going to just bite the bullet and do it again. So <laughs> joking aside, that's like a small opportunity for failure. I mean, I have had so many experiences for failure. Um, you know, the one that stands most prominently in my mind is I tried to do an FKT on the Cocopelli Trail. It goes from Loma, Colorado to Moab. It's 140 miles. I It was like my first public, really public announcement of an FKT. So I had done like the Oregon PCT before, but I didn't raise money. And for this, um, the Cocapelli FKT, I raised money to support women um, in climate change. And so I came to it with people watching me. Um, and I try to fly under the radar with stuff because I'm, I mean, I am scared of failing publicly. And I was on pace for the first, um, like, 100 miles, and then I fell off pace. And I didn't just, like, fall off pace by, like, 20 minutes. I fell off pace by, like, five hours. I finished, like, five or six hours past what I wanted to. And I walked the last 40 miles, and I was, like, a lot of what my mind was centered around was thinking, how am I going to talk to people about failing so, so greatly? And, you know, with, like, five miles left – after walking and like completely not trying, I was like, okay, like I can, I can do this. Like I can handle this. I'm going to just talk about it and be open about how hard it is. Um, but you know, if I had had a better, more flexible plan of like having more than one goal than just getting the FKT. And if I had been a little bit more comfortable with failure, then I don't know that I would have had the same amount of suffering of walking as slow as I could for 40 miles. So how do you think about that experience now? Like, do you think of it as like, like ultimately positive? Yes. Though I ran on the Cocoa Valley trail a couple of weeks ago and I was like, Oh my God, this is the worst trail ever. It's all Sandy. Why did I, why did I try this? But no, I, I think very positively about it. Like, and honestly, I think I fail at a couple of times during every ultra because I struggle so hard and it's really hard for me to pull myself out of that negative spiral and I have to constantly be working on it because my the way I my brain feels programmed is that it goes into a dark place pretty easily. And so I a lot of the skills that I'm working with other athletes on are the skills I'm working with myself of like, okay, when I have a really, really dark moment, how do I like bounce back and grow from it? And I, I see Cocapelli as one of those opportunities um, of failing. But I, I also don't see failure as a bad word. I see it as just a part of the process. Right. And I think that gets to this idea that like, for whatever reason, our brains are kind of like trained to focus on the negative. And it's like, mm -hmm. the real work is deprogramming that and like yeah. celebrating the fact that yeah, like we even towed the line at a race or like gave an FKT a shot, yeah. um, which I think is really great, especially in a sport as ridiculous as ultra running, you know, <laughs> yeah. where like, even just finishing the race is like, a major accomplishment. It really, you know, and that's, 
something that I've worked really hard on is being able to like, even if there are areas of improvement, still being able to acknowledge that I have put myself on the line and done something incredible in the process, even if it doesn't look exactly how I wanted it to. So before I get you out of here, um, I do want to ask a few for a few pack practical tips for how to like combat pre-race nerves as well as uh, maybe like post-race blues. Cause I know a lot of folks uh, deal with that kind of stuff. Um, and I think in, it can be like pretty tricky to overcome. Yeah, totally. Well, the first thing that I've kind of been a robot about is um, normalize it and acknowledge it. It is so normal to feel taper crazies as well as to feel post-race blues. And so one of the things that I like to look both of them, I like to see both of them as is opportunities. And so taper is really an opportunity to get your stuff together, like get mentally prepared, practice visualization, practice how you're going to adapt when things don't go your way, sleep in, treat yourself and do a little distracting so you can be as mentally and physically prepared and recovered because that's what taper is. And what about on the other side of a race? Because speaking from my experience, like I finished races or finished like a through hike and have had issues kind of like coming down from that experience. Totally. Um, and I'm, I'm, I have to assume that that is like not that unique of an experience. Um, what are some tips for how to like set yourself up to succeed after a race? I mean, I can personally relate. I go really, really deep into that dark hole after a, a big race. And a part of it is the endorphins um, drop as well as exhaustion and giving everything you have to this fickle sport. Um, and so the first part is, again, acknowledge it. Recognize that that's a, that's a part of, you know, giving your all at a sport. The next thing I like to remind people after they acknowledge it is having a plan beforehand. So during your taper tantrums, create a plan for post-race. So you make sure you're feeling supported, you're getting the right fuel, you're, you're able to sleep enough, and so your body can really take that opportunity to recover. Um, and then, you know, the final thing, or I guess two more things is like, do you have something to look forward to? So, and I'm not talking about another race because I don't necessarily think we need to bounce race to race, but an opportunity to like, I don't know, go to a cabin or go on a hike or, you know, go swimming or something that you haven't done. Um, and then, you know, remembering that this time is going to end. It's not going to last forever. Cool. I think that's a good spot uh, to end things today again. <laughs> um, I'm not going to mess it up this time. Yeah. Maybe. My hands no, are. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, we'll get IT on it. Uh, where can people <laughs> find you if they want to learn more about your coaching and your business? Sure. Um, my email or Instagram. Cool. I also have a website. We'll include all that stuff uh, in the show notes for awesome. this episode. Great. All right, Danielle. Thanks for talking to me. And thanks for talking to me twice. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Danielle for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, 
please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.